You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good, except it's really hot. It's summer. It's pouring here, and it's not summer. I think it's still spring. It's always interesting when we talk about whatever time it is, because someone could listen to this in the middle of winter and be like, oh, that sounds great. Oh, that's a very good point. <laughs> that is true. So I'm still teaching, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because Which is crazy. My school year hasn't ended. It ends at the end of June. That, yeah. What is that? Yeah, but right now, I don't know, because we start after Labor Day and it's, you know, I don't I don't make up the rules, man. I just teach. <laughs> but I'm kind of at that point this, at the end of the year that I'm like, oh, man, I want to teach so much more. But yet I'm hitting that wall and not the wall of my, you know, being really tired, but the wall of the year is ending. So I feel like there's so much stuff that I still want to do. I understand that feeling. Deciding what we teach and don't teach is one of the hardest things, you know, teachers yeah. do. And, you know, I know a lot of times districts mandate specific standards and curriculum, but we still have a lot of, we have that gatekeeper role, right? Where we actually decide how we put lessons together and organize it. Unless you're in like a really bad school that like. Oh, you get like, yeah, you have like the script that you have to follow. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, I meant like. Like we have our, our frameworks and we have what we decided to cover. And then some teachers go in more into depth on some things than other things. But still, man, there's I want to go deep on everything, which mm-hmm. is part of my problem. Is that a problem, though? I always remember when I was training to become a teacher and somebody yeah. was saying, you know, if we just let teachers do what they want. I have this teacher who would spend a full month on ancient Greece. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't understand what the problem is. Like, that sounds great. That's way better than, like, skimming over it in four days and no one really understanding ancient Greece very well. So this is where I think, particularly if you're teaching a course that's in sequence. So we do US 1 and US 2 freshman, sophomore year, right? And so if you're teaching US 1, you have to get to that pass-off point or else they're, I guess, never going to get this information. I don't know. I I always feel like I'm cramming stuff in. I just like to go deep in things. And that's why I've always really been in favor of organizing curriculum around themes, you know, especially history, because then you can even do that backwards curriculum where you start with the present and have a theme about, for example, U.S. conflicts that could lead to war and what types of conditions would that be? Well, let's take a deeper look at this by looking at the conditions throughout history where we have gone to war and what the reasons were. And so, like, by the end of it, I think students as citizens would have like a a more informed idea of the reasons countries go to war and like what their role should be as a citizen, as opposed to just like sporadically kind of covering. (laughs) This is the 1820s. Now we're on the 1830s. Oh, those 1840s. My favorite video, which only I think U.S. history teachers really appreciate is there was a um, college humor video on the war of 1812 where like the actors are portraying people in the war and they're like, why are we fighting again? Like, whose side am I on? And it's just like this war you kind of cover. And I remember my first year, like being that person, I was like, I don't really understand this war, but we have one day to cover it. So, (laughs) um, and so I think the rocket thread glare. 
And that's the problem is I think whenever we use the word cover curriculum, I have to cover it or I have to get students that info. We're uh, falling the into the student. we're falling into the trap of you know of of schools being about like sticking information in kids' heads as opposed to it being meaningful connections to their world. Mm. True. What do we got going on today? Well, I think we've just kind of blabbered back and forth about all kinds of ideas about curriculum, but as usual, we should probably bring in someone smarter than us who knows more about this topic to help inform us a bit. And so today we brought in uh, Mark Helmsing to talk to us a little bit about a curriculum theory. Ooh. Hey, Mark. Hello. Why, hello, sir. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Who is Mark that's actually a good curriculum question to start out with. Ooh. Who is, who are you and, and, and who is your own self? One way I could answer that question is to say that I am a assistant professor in the Graduate School of Education at George Mason University. I could also answer that question by saying I am a teacher educator. I could also answer that question by saying I'm from Indiana positioning okay. my, my, my background. So um, are we going to go thematically or are you going to do us, give us some coverage? Well, the coverage question's a classic place to start. You know, we talk about curriculum mapping. So you oh, make no, a map. Oh no, I'm your background. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's yeah. Well, you can make your own, your own background as a curriculum map. In fact, we call in academia, our resume is a curriculum vita about the whole course of your life. And that's kind of what curriculum is, is hinting at. But to give you the short synopsis, I started my teaching career teaching high school English and social studies and speech in Bloomington, Indiana. I did my undergraduate at Indiana University in a program called Community of Teachers. And my mentor and professor was David Flinders, one of the co-editors of the Curriculum Studies Reader. So it's with Dave Flinders at IU that I first began reading and thinking about curriculum. And then I taught overseas in Scotland for a while. I taught at a high school in downtown Phoenix and then went to graduate school at Michigan State University and spent some time teaching at the University of Wyoming out in Laramie before moving here to Washington, D.C., where I work in Northern Virginia at George Mason. So that's my geographic background, which may leave you with a lot of questions about still who am I and what's my own curriculum vita life. I know coming out of Michigan State, you worked with Avner Siegel, and the impression I always get from people who come out of Michigan State is they have a really critical eye towards curriculum because they don't ask what's in the curriculum. They ask what's not in the curriculum. That is classic Siegel. We would call that an Avnerism, uh, you could say. Um, it's, not, it's not what we teach. It's what we don't teach uh, that you could say is most important. And that's actually hearkening back to an earlier curriculum theorist, uh, Elliot Eisner, who talked about the null curriculum, the hidden curriculum, and the explicit curriculum, which is a concept uh, I teach in my curriculum studies classes with teachers. Can you tell us what those are? I know I do hear people bring those up a lot. Yeah. So what Eisner offered in that framework is calling teachers' attention to an explicit curriculum, which is what we can actually see. Sometimes that's called the enacted curriculum. So if we think about classrooms, the enacted or the explicit curriculum is what gets executed in classrooms. 
Um, it can it is similar to the intended curriculum, which is what we intend to teach. Although we know that our intended curriculum does not always take the form of the enacted or explicit curriculum. So Eisner then goes into a different direction to talk about the hidden curriculum. The hidden curriculum is the types of things that we teach and learn in schools that are not made explicit. They're sort of hidden by uh, gesturing to what you mentioned with Avner, um, things that we don't call attention to, but are present nonetheless. And then Eisner shows us a third level of curriculum, which is the null curriculum. And the null curriculum, taking its terminology from the idea of a null set in math or an empty set, is that which is actually absent. The null curriculum is what we either intentionally or unintentionally remove, exclude, and do not make present in schools and classrooms. Thank you very much for the definition. That actually is very helpful. Can you give examples of some of those, particularly the uh, the hidden and the null? Sure. Michael, there's one I always use, and Mark probably has better examples, but I always say, when teachers say, my students didn't learn anything in my class, I often say, they probably learned that they hate history. <laughs> you know, a lot oh, of no. students, that's what they do. Don't doesn't They say, I'm not a history person. And so I always think of part of the hidden curriculum is that History is boring and monotonous in these standards. We're all always learning something. It just may not be that official enacted curriculum. Yeah, I think what Dan just offered up there is an excellent example of the intended and unintended curriculum or the explicit or the implicit curriculum. Uh, we think about hidden curriculum. Hidden curriculum could be something as simple as how you learn to stand in line as you wait to go outside for recess or the hidden curriculum in terms of expectations that America is number one through ideas of American exceptionalism that is often there but not made explicit in a history or civics class. An example of the null curriculum, which is gaining a lot of attention in the news, is that for many, many years, teachers did not have formal or explicit curriculum about teaching LGBT history. It was not taught, it was silenced, it was null. We didn't bring attention to it. Now, Illinois, California, and some other states are adopting curriculum frameworks to talk about LGBT history, removing that from the null curriculum to the intended curriculum. Similarly, we see new curriculum frameworks, like in your previous episode, about slavery in the curriculum and making slavery a more explicit intended part of the curriculum as opposed to have it being less formal or less recognized as a part of the curriculum. Thank you. Mark, are there certain approaches around which curriculum studies is organized? Yes. And one way to start is to grapple with one of the central questions that the curriculum studies field poses, which is what knowledge is of most worth. So curriculum studies scholars have, in various ways, all cycled around this question of, what is the knowledge that's most worth knowing, teaching, learning, experiencing, transmitting, saving, calling attention to? And I'll give you a crash course history of curriculum thought in the United States knowing that curriculum thought and curriculum studies looks very different in different countries. 
so for example, in the United States, we had a very traditional classical curriculum in academies, private schools throughout the 1800s. And with the dawn of the progressive era in the early 1900s, a lot of reformers and educators knew that they had to start making schools different to reflect the growing student population in our uh, K-12 schools in the United States. So throughout the early decades of the 20th centuries, many attempts were made to experiment and change the school curriculum. Instead of being Greek, Latin, astronomy, grammar, history, geometry, to start thinking in creative and different ways about the curriculum. And there were a lot of different reasons, ideologies, and purposes for, for doing this. So during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, you see curriculum thought in the United States take on different perspectives, whether it was a progressive perspective, constructivist perspective, social reconstruction perspective. You had some educators who thought that this was a moment in U.S. history to teach a new world order, referencing George Counts, to get students to think critically about their world and to change things uh, for the better, to have this utopian impulse towards the curriculum. You had other educators and curriculum thinkers who advocated for a more pragmatic or vocational aspect of the curriculum. Here we start seeing things like driver's ed being taught in school, home economics, business education. These thinkers and educators sometimes agreed, but more often they disagreed about what is it that young people should learn in schools. So we see a lot of changes in the first half of the 20th century through different curriculum documents, curriculum guides, curriculum reports. My students in my graduate class last week just studied the cardinal principles of secondary education from 1918, and we compared it 100 years later to our local school district's portrait of a graduate in 2018. And they looked at some of the similarities and differences over the last century of what it is that we expect high school students to leave being able to know and do. Ooh. And then can this we, changes a lot in the later half of the 20th century. Can we pause on this for a second? Like that sounds fascinating. What were some of the differences between 1918 and 2018? So we found that there were actually more similarities than there were differences. Some of those similarities were that the both reports, 2018 and the 1918 report, wanted students to be able to solve problems. So problem solving has been something that we've expected students to do uh, for 100 years. They also saw that um, both program or both reports expected students to be able to express themselves using written expression, mathematical thinking, reading and writing. One more similarity is the idea of creating ethical students. So both documents talk about creating ethical character in students or students being able to use and think about ethical actions in their lives. But some of the differences that are notable is that the 2018 report talks about global citizens, being a member of a global world, being a member of a wider world, the 1918 report doesn't reference that. It doesn't reference your membership in the, in the wider world. What the 1918 report does reference is your membership in a home. So that report really clearly emphasizes that as a high school graduate, you will soon be creating a family. You'll be creating a home, making a home for your family. And it's important that you know what it means to be a worthy member of a family. The 2018 portrait of a graduate 
does not reference that expectation for people graduating high school. So my students found that to be quite interesting. So when I talk about curriculum, I often start with talking about our philosophies about what knowledge is, what truth is, um, because those seem to be really integral to me. So I often talk to my students about the five philosophies of education, which can be oversimplified. And to me, I group those into two categories. One is traditional education, which tends in general, you have to kind of, to get the boundaries of the field, you almost have to kind of put these into little stereotypical boxes to get it, uh, even though they can all be more complex and I think done in different ways. But one side I say is traditional education, which tends to be more teacher centered. So, and the knowledge tends to be predetermined. And so the, the the main philosophy there is essentialism. And I often think about even in Texas, our standards are called the Texas Essential Standards. And they're, they're TEKS. Um, there may be something else on that. But the Texas Essential Standards and the idea is that these, this knowledge is essential and everyone should have to know it. And so uh, obviously truth is, has already been determined. Students really shouldn't have a say in the curriculum. And you have people historically like E.D. Hirsch who wrote, you know, literally a book that said these are the things people should know, which to me I always think is one of the most like arrogant things anyone could do. Here's what everyone else in the world should know. Um, but he did it. Uh, and then I think of perennialism being more present in like Catholic schools. And it's still the idea that knowledge is um, kind of, uh, you know, predetermined. We already know what's, what's worthwhile, but we know it because of its enduring classical ideas that have stood the test of time. And so you see it in Catholic schools where the Catholic doctrine and Bible can be the core of the curriculum. But you could also just see it in English classes where, you know, the, the quote unquote classics um, come up over and over again. And that's how you know they're good. And so students should learn the truths from those too. So on traditional philosophies, did, would I do okay if that was kind of the message? Yes. I think you laid out a really helpful way of thinking about those competing ideologies to curriculum and those approaches to how we think about curriculum. One thing that's sort of missing from that perspective is the idea of having um, social reproduction as a goal of curriculum, which is to sort of reproduce um, what it is that we find desirable or noble or worthwhile about a given culture society and using curriculum to reproduce that, transmit that, and uphold that. Flinders and Thornton and their curriculum work speak to that as gatekeeping. Um, are teachers gatekeepers of certain kinds of knowledge? Are they gatekeepers of um, traditions or ways of being in the world? And this is when we see a shift in curriculum studies. In the 1970s and 80s, we begin seeing what we would call curriculum theory often associated with a group of scholars called the Reconceptualists, Bill Pinar, Michael Apple, Madeline Grumet, um, Dwayne Hubner at Teachers College. These scholars brought in theories from the humanities and social sciences to bring to bear on what the curriculum conversations students and scholars were having in schools and colleges of education. So they are a bowling team. It would be fun if they did, uh, and that would have been a cool name. <laughs> That's That was my thought. The other side of the coin that I often discuss with my students is then the more student-centered philosophies that tend to 
uh, believe that knowledge is constructed and subjective to a degree that it's it, that knowledge is important within our own context. And so we can't say exactly what knowledge is worthwhile. And so the, th the three philosophies, I think, on those terms are progressivism, which is often associated with, you know, ideas of learning by doing, or as I like to say, learning by doing, because John Dewey is associated, even though he rejected the, the frame, the term progressivism, and thought that that was the wrong way to think of it, thought figuring out if experiences were educative was a better a better method. But so you have progressivism, which is your typical student-centered. Students create the curriculum. Students help create the rule. Students would be like in Kathy Whitehead when we had her on, Michael, for um, student-led uh, teacher conferences where they students present their own you know, work and, and share. That students are involved in making decisions in everything, including their own assessment, that they would have a say in all that. But then reconstructivism to me is the same idea, except that we are going to reconstruct a better society, that we are going to uh, use school as a way to address society's problems, whether it's homelessness or institutional racism or, um, you know, corruptness, that we are going to figure out ways that our, we can do projects that choose projects to make the world better, and that's the best way to learn. But then the one that's always kind of an awkward fit into this into this student-centered one is existentialism, because the other two are very social, that we decide these things together. Existentialism is the idea that we all... Uh, must figure out existence for ourselves so we cannot tell each other what, you know, existence is worthwhile. And so every individual, every individual should get to decide their own curriculum. And I guess the most famous example is A.S. Neal's Summerhill School in England, where literally kids just showed up and studied and did whatever they wanted and teachers were there just to support them. Is that is that pretty accurate of the, the philosophies or is there something kind of left out in that, in that model? I think all that's really accurate and reflects the trajectory of curriculum thought in the United States. One of the things that's important to point out about existentialist curriculum theory, uh, besides the fact that very few curriculum theorists use the term existentialism anymore, existentialist thought has kind of faded away. Uh, no one really reads Sartre anymore or some of these ex existentialist writers. But something that's important to point out about that is that existentialist thinking as you say, reflected in Summerhill and some other really innovative utopian sort of projects for schooling, really emphasize the importance of the self, putting that sort of self-autobiographical reflective emphasis on what it is that you know about yourself, which we were sort of jokingly talking about as we started the episode, and then also what it is that the student is realizing about their own life that they can see reflected in the curriculum. And what's really important to notice about existentialist curriculum thinking is that that planted the seed for what later in the 80s and 90s and in recent decades, we've come to see in things such as culturally responsive teaching, culturally relevant pedagogy, culturally sustaining pedagogies. Those pedagogies have tapped into funds of knowledge, students' cultural, racial, ethnic, gendered class experiences, and those ways of thinking about the curriculum sort of began in some ways with these existentialist ideas that you know, our students know a lot about themselves, their own lives, the world. We need to be open to them and be open to the uncertainty that we as teachers don't have all the answers. We as teachers can make a beautiful lesson plan for Monday, watch it fall apart, and be open to the learning that unfolds. Anyone who's taught knows what happens when you have younger students 
we have to do an indoor recess and it's a rainy day outside. And with that indoor recess, you're sort of learning on the fly. You're playing on the fly and seeing how that unfolds. Um, and that openness, that uncertainty is something that many teachers feel has been lost in the last few decades of standards-based education reform and accountability reform. When we try to standardize the curriculum, oftentimes what happens is we get a kind of like white middle-class idea about what the curriculum should be and culturally responsive teaching is saying we need to address how our worldviews views are embedded in which knowledge is important, how we think about what to include. So for example, a culturally responsive curriculum uh, would not just teach you know math or social studies, but would understand that, for example, your student who's an immigrant may help run their family store. And those are the types of experiences that, of course, you should be integrating into your classroom because they bring a lot of knowledge about economics, about social relationships, about culture. And if you just standardize and decide what all those things are beforehand, you won't be able to build on that knowledge that they have and also learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. That knowledge is something that Lee Shulman called wisdom, that we have this wisdom of practice. And I'm interested in looking at curriculum as it unfolds in schools and classrooms. It's important to point out that for a lot of curriculum scholars, they view curriculum as something that is much larger and can unfold in all kinds of places, not just schools, but museums, popular culture, places of, of worship and religion are places of recreation, that curriculum is something that's larger and fills up the whole world just in school. But I want to talk a little bit about curriculum. The curriculum of life, absolutely. That could be a book, or it might already be a book. And Uh, I like popular culture, like I remember seeing a Wakanda syllabus, right? Like as as the movie Black Panther came out, that some teachers started uh, thinking about, what do we learn from that? And then like, what would you have to study and understand to really understand that movie? Well, what Pinar points out is that the Latin infinitive of curriculum, the root of, of curriculum is carere. Carere is a Latin word that means to run a course uh, like a chariot or to run a circle of one's life, to go through a course of something. So the curriculum is something that is something that we can see as a cycle or a course running through anywhere. It's what we experience when we engage in the unfolding of something. So the curriculum of food, for example, is reflected in everything from foodies to the omnivore's dilemma to thinking about where your food comes from to thinking about how we have a relationship with food. One of my favorite curriculum theorists is Lynn Findler, who was my professor at Michigan State University. She makes a provocative claim that out of all the curriculum questions we ask about school, why don't we ask ourselves questions about taste and pleasure? When is the last time that we have thought about teaching children to learn how to cultivate certain tastes for things or how to cultivate a certain pleasure in anything from learning how to appreciate the taste of vegetables, which many of us would argue is important for children, or something broader as learning how to help children develop a taste for um, certain kinds of art, an infinity for playing with others, for being outside. Um, And Fiddler's curriculum theory is really helpful for helping me think about all the kinds of things that we don't consider being taught in schools and the things that we could teach to be taught in schools. My uh, takeaway as a child from uh, Snow White was not to eat apples. So that yes. was, uh, th- that, I guess that was an unintended consequences that I, I did not eat apples for a very long time because, you know, poison. 
And we see in the Walt Disney animated motion picture of Snow White, numerous curriculum lessons, right? Snow White is, we empathize with Snow White because she's learning a lot of tough lessons as that movie unfolds. She's learning about the curriculum, the sort of hidden curriculum of family dynamics, certain ideas about what counts as a family, who counts as a, as a, as a parental figure, uh, what happens when your stepmother um, is trying to steal your heart, literally, versus living with seven questionable men out in the woods in a cottage. Uh, we, t- we learn lessons about why each I of those so seven I have so many dwarfs. questions about that. Yeah, what was the deal? Like, I feel like Doc must have done something. He must have really screwed up at his medical career because, yeah, there's something weird going on there. And, yeah, I have many issues with this. <laughs> yeah. I feel like he's keeping um, them all drugged. Dopey's probably really smart, but he has to, he's being dumbed down through some sort of thing. And that's a great curriculum lesson, too, about how some of our identities define who we are, right? So one of the things that children learn watching Snow White through that curriculum is, is that some of your dominant personality traits are going to be how you're defined and how other people come to know you, whether it's dopey, sleepy, bashful. And Snow White, we can see at different moments during the film, works with the dwarves to help push them beyond their insecurities and how they think about themselves. We could argue that's a psychoanalytic approach to curriculum, but Deborah Brisman's work is really helpful in that regard, helping us think about what is it that we learn about ourselves that we'd rather not share or not address or not face in the classroom. She calls that difficult knowledge. I like this conversation swirling around from you know point to point, and we go back and return. You were, I think, at one point earlier coming to um, tell us about kind of some of the changes that came about in the 1970s. What are the current strands of kind of movements about the ways people think about curriculum? So what the reconceptionalists came on the field trying to do and say was they were very dissatisfied, bored, and unhappy with what they saw other curriculum scholars doing as being too obsessed with talking about school subjects. So it's important to keep in mind that up and through the 1970s, Curriculum studies in the United States was synonymous with school subjects. What is the knowledge that we arrange, organize, classify, and teach in schools? So if you look at curriculum books, curriculum textbooks throughout the first half of the 20th century into the 1970s, it's all about defining school subjects. The reconceptionalists, Bill Pinar and his colleagues, came on the field to say curriculum is so much more than that, that we shouldn't be constrained by thinking about what's the best way to teach algebra or what's the best way to divide the social studies curriculum across 12 grades. They wanted us to think much more broadly about curriculum. And this was mirroring this sort of rise of theory in the humanities and social sciences. Today, where I would, how I would classify curriculum studies is by making two important points. One is teachers who are new to the profession K-12 teaching in public schools in the United States may not know that for many, many years, their work in schools really revolved around curriculum. And I make the argument, it's pretty polemical, that most of us are in, most of us who are in schools of education are in departments of curriculum and instruction. We seem to be very much focused on instruction in 2018, and we seem to be very little focused on curriculum. We see in school districts a receding and a disappearance of superintendents, administrators, directors, coordinators who focused a lot on curriculum for a long time. 
now that work has shifted towards emphasize, uh, emphasizing assessment, emphasizing accountability, emphasizing instruction. When I meet with new teachers or emerging teachers who are new to the K-12 field, a lot of their concerns and conversations revolve around what I would call to be instructional issues. They have not been given necessarily a space to grapple and think about and play with curriculum questions, which are questions about knowledge, questions about content, questions about what is it that it's possible to think about and do and learn with your students as learners. And part of the reason for that is because a consequence of the 1990s and the standards reform movement was a codification of curriculum. So we see in common core standards in most states having their own set of curriculum or academic content standards that everything that I'm supposed to teach is laid out for me. It's mapped out with scope and sequence. What's important for teachers to understand is that's just one way of looking at curriculum. We know that curriculum is bigger and broader than that. And the fact that we have teachers struggling right now with appropriate lesson plans on slavery and doing simulations in social studies that we find to be problematic, a consequence of that and a cause of that is that teachers have not been given an intellectual space to think deeply and critically about what it is that they're supposed to teach or what they could teach in their subject areas. As an example of that, I've sometimes asked my students to explore what I call the social studies of everything, which is the idea that, you know, we can take these disciplinary approaches as just lenses into the world, right? That we could explore, for example, social media is a, you know, something I've researched, but it's also just like a phenomenon that we're trying to understand on the go as it's been introduced in our society. But a way to possibly understand it deeper is to explore the history of social media, like what other media forms have changed the world and what can we learn from those. The potential geography of social media. I often hear how, uh, you know, social media can connect us with people all over the world. Is that really true? Or And where do people use it? Where even in our lives do we use social media? The, the economics of social media, understanding how social media companies actually profit from us getting on and tweeting and Facebooking and should we know more about that and where our data goes and how it's used? Obviously, that's become a, a bigger issue since the it, it came out that Facebook you know, sold our data away, even though that's their business model. Um, so it shouldn't have been surprising. And then possibly even the civics of social media. Should we have legislation that limits it? You know, Should we use our lawmaking processes to put limits on it? But the idea that anything from food to social media to uh, relaxation or leisure or it, really any topic we could explore through these different lenses... But I sometimes find that teachers say, that's great. That sounds really good. I have to teach these Texas essential standards. And that's, I think, what you're pointing at is, is tell me how to do that on Monday. And I really do understand that pressure because it's difficult to get away from that in schools. Here we go back to some insights that my students developed last week when they read this 1918 report, The Cardinal Principles of Secondary Education. What this cardinal report indicated was that it's important for schools to encourage good health habits and provide physical activities and to help young people explore what it means to be in good health. We might see that as a nostalgic or antiquated aspect of school, but as my students pointed out a hundred years later, we are grappling with the same things as we consider teaching mindfulness to our students, teaching meditation to our students, 
teaching our students to think about wellness and well-being in their lives. I spent part of last academic year in the spring teaching at a middle school, and a lot of the issues that the seventh grade teachers were grappling with in their professional development were issues of trauma, learning and reading and working with guest speakers in their professional development about the effects of trauma on learners and learning in schools. And the point of that is, no matter how great and rich your conversations are about the standards and developing lesson plans in algebra, biology, geography, you still need to think of these larger curricular issues that we can see 100 years ago were being asked in U.S. schools about worthy use of leisure. That's the sixth principle of the cardinal principles, that students should be given the skills to enrich their body, mind, spirit, and personality in all subjects, including music, art, literature, drama, social issues, and science. So if I'm waxing sort of poetically about something from 100 years ago, it's because at that point we knew even then that it was important to welcome young people into our schools and help them build better better lives and not be too obsessed with subject matter and content knowledge. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing in curriculum studies? Sure. So my main interest in my teaching and my research is the role of affect, emotions, and feelings in curriculum and pedagogy. So what I mean by that is we as educators need to be mindful of how the emotional and affective components of the curriculum that we teach influences things that we learn in school. Because I primarily work in social studies, I'm a curriculum theorist who's interested in issues of social studies education. And to give you some examples of what I've been working on, I'm doing a project right now that looks at the curriculum of war. Any social studies teacher, especially a history educator, will say that a lot of their curriculum revolves around teaching wars, the U.S. Civil War, World War I, the Vietnam War, and increasingly we're having to teach lessons on wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But what I find interesting is that we don't have curriculum frameworks to help us theorize about war. We know that wars are these historical events that have a start date and an end date. We don't have a framework for how to think about the emotional and affective aspects of war. Sometimes teachers will have students read poetry, letters, diary entries written by soldiers. That's one of many ways to sort of think about the human and affective aspects of war. So I'm really interested in helping educators think more about how war, violence, and conflict in general can be taught in schools and what that means when we start looking at the emotional aspect of those topics. That's really cool. We'll definitely link a few of your articles that you choose in our show notes if people would like to, to read a bit more about your work. So Mark, just to kind of uh, finish up here, can you tell us what would be your advice for K-12 educators, teacher educators who are trying to rethink or assess curriculum in their settings? So I think about a conversation I saw on Twitter a couple days ago where a lot of teachers chimed in on a thread where they were talking about their dissatisfaction in their education classes in their teacher preparation programs. And one of the recurring topics I saw in these comments from educators revolved around the fact that they weren't given a time to think about their content. And we hear this as teacher educators time and time again, that especially at the secondary level, our teacher candidates need more exposure to content and less exposure to 
pedagogy or teaching philosophies or teaching theories. But what these individuals were all pointing towards in their Twitter comments was that they had a lot of content knowledge from their history, English, or math courses at their universities. But what they were lacking was the opportunity to think about what that means when you translate the content into curriculum. I just was talking to a graduate student today who did a master's thesis on medieval religious history with hermits in England in the 1300s. And when I asked her to translate that to what does it mean to teach those topics to high school students, for example, she struggled with that because that struggle is very productive. It's, it's a very generative space to think about what does it mean to make something teachable, learnable, uh, to create it as curriculum. We have all this knowledge, the E.D. Hirsch Jr. knowledge, for example, but we still don't have a way to think about how do we make that into something that is worth knowing, should be known, and could be known by learners. So I would say we need to help educators, particularly classroom teachers, think about their curriculum, not just as content knowledge, not just as standards, not just as test question items, but also as stuff worth knowing. Curriculum as the stuff that runs through the race course or the course of our lives. I would love to figure out how to bring in hermits, to uh, 12th century her hermits, to, to the curriculum. That seems really wild. That's what came out of this for us, Michael, is to restructure schools around hermit curriculum. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Mark, where can our listeners find you and your work online? I'm frequently uh, active on Twitter. So find me on Twitter at Mark Helmsing. And there you can link to my researcher bio profile. And from there, find links to some of my articles and book chapters. And of course, we'll get those in the, the show notes too. So Mark, thank you again so much for joining us today. And we certainly hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Looking forward to those conversations. Thank you. Absolutely. We're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. And if you haven't already, and really, you probably just should, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and really wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Hopefully. Hopefully that's true. Hopefully. <laughs> and if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. Please do so. That helps people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. <laughs>